Okay. Well, this is the third part and the final part of Haman. We're talking about the spirit of witchcraft in the book of Esther. Spirit of witchcraft around the Purim story. And how there was a brain fuzz that kind of took place. So this is part three. And uh, we should finish it up today. So last week we contrasted two types of authority. And we talked about when evil people suddenly get the power in the land. And then we talked about the difference when a righteous person gets authority. And how swiftly Mordecai acted. How completely, how he immediately took something that was evil in his kingdom and switched around. So it's very unique to watch a, a man that's righteous take over authority. But we're still going to see that Esther was negotiating. We all know how she negotiated earlier in the story. And we talked about how she was very shrewd. She was very clever. She had a big dinner. She let nothing go down that was unusual to the two men. So they were more than willing to have her cook for them again. They all were impressed with what she put together. But on the second dinner, on the second night, I mean, boy, did Haman get the surprise. And actually, her husband got a big surprise, too. And so she revealed the enemy. And, and the enemy that her husband couldn't see, she was able to reveal to him. So our negotiation with Esther, we feel like, oh, she's complete. She's done everything that she needs to do. She has saved her kingdom with the connection of her and Mordecai that she has been able to bring about the ability to break hold a witchcraft yoke over their land, a control yoke, something that was going to give the Jews a genocide. And so she's pulled it off. But I told you, I said, there is a second intercession on Esther's part for her people. There's a second negotiation. We talked about last week that the scripture was unusual. The first time Esther, she stood before the king. And this time she actually falls before the king. First time she was standing, Esther 5-2 was the standing. So the first time she stands before him, and the second time she falls before him. What would cause her to want to fall down before the king? I mean, by the time that you have something you want so bad, you're going to fall at somebody's feet, you're wanting it pretty bad. So what was it that she wanted that's so unique that she would fall in front of him? So now it's a completely different stance that she takes, literally. Have you ever found yourself where you actually fell in front of somebody and asked for something that you wanted it so bad you fell at their feet? Because I wanted you to put yourself in her place because I want you to understand how strong this request was on her because the first time she was standing, the second time the Bible says she was falling. Now, we ended last week with the concept that Israel is such a unique little nation that the UN has to write 200 resolutions against their behavior when they only write 20 against all the other countries combined. It just shows that Israel just keeps them really busy. That's how I said about one president. You know you're really doing your job when you get impeached two times. The majority of your presidency, you're under some kind of a watch. That means you're actually uh, fighting corruption. If you're never in trouble, I would say Perhaps you're not doing your job. You're not resisting evil. It's possibility. And so this is where we leave it. And Esther has achieved her goal. Now we're going to just go over what has happened. But I still haven't had anyone bring to the table the real reason we did this three-part series. And it's because of her request that she makes at this second round that is so unusual. 
It's puzzled everybody for years. We'll take up here. So they're going to lay hands on those who sought out their harm. The way that the Jews were given their freedom was not, oh, let's just go kill everybody that was going to kill the Jews because you didn't know who it was. They had just allowed the villages to say you can kill all the Jews. So instead of just the king going out and indiscriminately killing, you wouldn't know who was going to kill. It's much like today. You can't exactly tell who's on which side. And so the way they did it was just, okay, go ahead and, and let them attack you. And when they attack you, you're allowed to defend yourself. Like you can give a defense. And so that's how they overcame a law that was put into place that could not be revoked. You know, they were under the law of the Medes and the Persians. And in the law of the Medes and the Persian, you're not allowed to ever revoke it. So the way that they had to handle that law was put up something more powerful than the, the law that had just passed. So that's something to remember is that when we're trying to uproot corruption, you need to put stronger laws in. You need to put something in that, that annihilates the past law. And then something unusual fell upon everybody, and it was the dread of Mordecai. So we've been talking a lot about the fear of the Lord. And it's unique that people fear good men. Again, we reference a righteous leader we just had. They had a huge dread of him. Yeah. Like He couldn't even open his mouth without them just dreading him. Mm-hmm. And that's an anointing when you have something on your life that you really have that ability to resist evil well. That the fear of the Lord falls on people that are around you. And the dread of Mordecai fell. And it assisted the Jews because the dread of Mordecai had fallen upon them. And at the same time, it says this man Mordecai grew greater and greater. So God does have a plan for men to grow greater and greater. It's not just that the evil men grow greater and greater on the earth. It should be that the righteous, the ones with the plan, the ones with the strategy, the ones that are resisting evil. And it says that the Jews did what they pleased to those who hated them. Now the Jews killed 75,000 of their enemies in Mm self-defense. So it would be more than triple Brownwood. And remember, this is a war that was taken to the women and the children. Proverbs 26, 27 holds true with this. Whoever digs a pit will fall into it. If somebody rolls a stone, it'll roll back on them. And this is exactly what happened, that everybody that planned a weapon against the Jews, actually the very thing came back on them. The stone rolled back down over them, and the pit they dug, they actually fell into. Esther is not finished. She keeps going. She's not self-focused. She doesn't just stop there. I would say just as David knocked Goliath down with a stone, It would have been merely a partial victory if he had not taken off Goliath's head with Goliath's own sword. Esther has a victory to complete. So 75,000 people are dead. What else might she want? What else is she going to say, I want? Like, I've got 75,000 people dead. What else do I want? One more request. But there's one more request on her heart, a very unique one. Do you know that final request? And secondly, does it have future implications? So she has 75,000 dead, and this Jewish woman still isn't satisfied. This is still considered a partial victory to her. 
Yes. And she took the ten sons of Haman. Now, what are the ten sons of Haman doing? Are they at their father's house banqueting? Are they running for their lives? What were the ten sons of Haman doing? They were dead. They were already dead. That's what makes no sense to this. It says that they were killed in a battle at the citadel of Susa. So they're already dead, and she still wants them. But they only had one day of killing. You know, they only had that one pushback of killing. So the first thing it does in Esther 7 through 9 is it names the names of the ten sons. I'll spare you the names. They actually sound like names you'd see in India. But it names out the ten sons. Now, what's interesting about this, you would think that they'd name the names if there was going to be a lineage. And these guys are already dead. But this gives you a list. And it says they're killed, and these are the names of the ten that are killed. Now, one important thing in these type countries, especially when they have like what you call blood libel curses, is if you kill a father, it obligates the son to go kill you. Like it becomes a an honor killing. They have to kill you. If it kills a relative, if something happens to a member of your family, it is part of the culture that they have to go kill you. So when we were in Kosovo, they have that going on. We were with a Dutch team. The Dutch team had driven down from Holland, and it was a very rainy day. We were all trying to leave the city. We had worked with the Holland team, but we had also ministered to them because their growth, I mean, they were trying, but there was just a lot they didn't know, and they were involved in a very bad wreck. Now, when we checked into the wreck in Kosovo, a van of Kosovo people had hit them, but somebody had died in the van of the Kosovo people, even though the wreck was their fault. Well, what they weren't expecting was that the whole Dutch van wrecked. The van won't work anymore. They can't get back to Holland, and they're put in jail. And they're put in jail because they've killed someone in the other van. Even though they were the one driving Mm -hmm. and got hit, they are now in jail as a Christian team because a van hit them and someone died. And they said the next thing was that they had to take them and have an honor killing. And this is modern society. That's why I'm saying all these millennials (laughs) that, uh, (laughs) yeah, that are just so involved in these cultures, you know, they're just like, oh, they're just peaceful people. Yeah. It's an eye for an eye, even if you're not the party in the wrongs. So this is the point of why women and children were killed because of the fact that the children will rise up and kill you. Like Haman had not gotten over his anger and it's, well, all these hundreds of years later and he's still mad at what had taken place earlier in history. So that's why if you killed the dad, you had to go ahead and kill the rest of the family. But Esther takes it further. They're dead. And so what Esther does is she has a request you're going to see this in 7 through 10 she doesn't take the plunder in connection with the sons now Haman had so much money do you remember the amount of silver that he offered to the king if the Jews could be killed what it somehow 50,000 pieces of silver some treasury like that and the king said no so he still has that treasury but the plunder isn't taken they leave that alone and then verse 12 it says and the king acknowledges to Esther that the sons are dead So he tells his wife, not only is Haman dead, but his sons are dead. 
So verse 12, the king said to Queen Esther, The Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and the 10 sons of Haman at the citadel in Susa. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? So he said, if this many's been killed here, you can imagine what's happened everywhere else. And so he goes, what is your petition? He's given her a report. He's saying, we've accomplished our objectives. I'm not hearing that any of your people are killed. But what is your petition? Whatever you're saying, it shall be granted to you. You talk about some trust already built. He's saying, whatever this is, it makes no sense to me. Your enemies are dead. Your personal anger at Haman, they're dead. What further requests do you have? It'll also be done. Wow, that's when you built trust between two people. Whatever you're going to ask me, it's already yes. So what had started as a negotiation the first time with her husband, now he probably is very shaken that he came that close to making that big of a mistake. He probably has some self-doubt in him. He probably is like, I don't think I trust my decision-making or my discernment. I don't trust, you know, what I was suckered into. Like, I'm feeling very vulnerable right now, and I don't trust myself. I think you're hearing that in the king, that these absolute orders were a little bit more than he had bargained for. So he is very much trusting her judgment. She has proven herself to him. So in verse 13, you get the request that I was driving for. If it pleases the king, let the sons be hanged. So in verse 13, Esther makes a request, and this one is thrown at his feet, and he tells her, whatever you say. And you can tell for sure this is not just a chronological mistake in the text, because 12, the king says to her, they're dead. And 13, she says, I want them deader. (laughs) I want them displayed. It is the David taking Goliath down. But when he took his head off, it was a clear victory. And so when you don't finish in war, it's considered a partial victory. We have the concept, just shoot him in the knee and let him keep coming. Still pretty research history occurring. I mean, Mussolini and his girlfriend or whoever, when they assassinated them in Italy in World War II, they drove them through the streets and then put them on display in town mm-hmm. for several days. Yes. Well, I mean, it's what we're not getting about what happened with the World Trade Centers. I'm displaying the fact that I defeated you. I struck you. It's telling them your enemy is still alive is why I built a marker. Yeah. Yeah. So they're showing you that unless you get us all dead, it's not going to take care of your problem. And we're not thinking in those terms. But in these type cultures, this type of evil will not stop at that. And so she says, if it pleases the king, let them be impaled. Let them be hung. I mean, it's a, let's do something to them. Now, the 13th day they killed them. The 14th day they rested and feasted outside of Susa. And the 15th they rested and feasted. The king commanded that it should be so. Verse 10 doesn't take the plunder. Verse 14, they were hung. 15 doesn't take the plunder. 16 doesn't take the plunder. They're making very clear to you that the motive was not to take the plunder. It is not just a reference thrown out there. They didn't take the plunder. They're making sure that you're understanding that the motive was not to get what the people had. 
they didn't take it. They didn't want to touch it. They were abhorrent to them. You can have some enemies that were so abhorrent to you, you don't want what they've got. Like, it's a deep disgust. And you can imagine the feeling of people that are that abhorrent to you. You're like, I don't want anything. So you're seeing 14, 15, and 16, that in among it is, in 14, they're hung. But before it, after it, in the middle of it, they're telling you, we're not going to do the plunder. Okay, so Ahasuerus has not taken the silver for the annihilation. And this shows that it was not a personal gain. Motives other than money were involved. There was hate by Haman, but this is called recompense by Mordecai. Yeah. yeah, and so in Psalm 91, it talks about the recompense of the wicked. That means that when somebody has been very evil towards you, very corrupt, they hate you because of the Lord, that what's righteous is recompense. It's different. It's not bloodthirsty. It's not wanting what they've got. It's something where it's a righteous thing of this evil stops here and now with me. I mean, we feel that of asking the Lord, would you please give us that kind of a judgment over our city, over our state, over our nation? Because here and now it stops. You see a very unique term that we probably don't understand because we don't understand that blood curse. We can't even imagine having, like what I was describing, a car wreck like that you suddenly being responsible for something you didn't cause. That would be where I would tell you if you live in a country like that and you run the risk that someone else's evil could get them killed, that you better be praying harm doesn't be able to attack me, nor can I give it. Harm doesn't come out of me because you're held responsible for any harm someone does to themselves. So anyway, in verse 20, Mordecai chronicles this. He writes it down. He makes a record of what takes place. So in verse 24 and 26, they cast pur. This is where Purim comes. The occult was involved with the annihilation developed in Esther. Now we're going to take correspondence to uh, future events. Haman was an astrologer, and when he was about to fix the time for the genocide, witchcraft went into the dates. And we see other biblical stories that follow suit, similar things, that there was lot cast to destroy someone, Roman soldiers. And so this casting of the witchcraft, I think that in Haman's story, I think it was more than just dice. I think it was actually things they used to tell the future with witchcraft. Like they picked the date. You know, if you've ever seen that on a movie or something, they actually do something that, actually brings demonic influence into the time of the date. And we said, you know, it actually got into our capital where we had a good president, but because his wife got into fear, he allowed himself to not have any dates on his second term except what was told by an astrologer. So remember this note. Haman was hanged from the 50-cubit-high gallows that had originally been built by Haman himself on the advice of his wife, Zeresh, in order to hang Mordecai. So on the Feast of Purim, the synagogue reader reads these ten names all in one breath because the sons of Haman all died together. So when they're celebrating this, Purim in the synagogue, part of it is the drama of reading the story. So because it was a a good hanging, ten at once, you'll have the reader and he's able to articulate those ten names and he goes down them and 
he doesn't take a breath. Why are they specifically named? One cannot be sure except their names will live in infamy. Because they are all hung at once. So you see with the Jewish tradition that this is one of their favorite stories that they tell. So let's ask, why did Esther ask for the hanging? To make it public? To put it together for people? To make a point? To complete a victory? They are hanged after they're dead. Completing the victory. Haman dead. Son's dead. And now son's dead. And then son's hung. (laughs) Son's dead. And then son's hung. Why? And then we start the idea of, was this a prophetic act? And I'll tell you what gives them the ideal in your scripture was the word tomorrow gives you the ideal of future. There is a tomorrow that is now and a tomorrow which is later. So when they make note that the hanging of the sons are tomorrow, then it's a reference that rabbis and different thinkers say it could have implications into the future. The prophecy. They actually feel like, let the Haman's ten sons be hung, that that is a part of a prophetic quiz. Since the trial was conducted by a military tribunal, the sentence handed down should have been a firing squad. Okay, so hang on to that thought for a minute. Or was this a, when they did it, was this a prophetic request? Was Esther reaching through history and requesting this? Is this something where Esther was making a request of there needs to be a payment for what has taken place? Was she reaching through history? This is the prophetic. So we're going to move this forward to the next huge genocide of the Jews. And we're going to say, was this peace? Is this how you get witchcraft dead? Is this how you bring it to a close? A terrible part of history. Could you just win the war, kill them? And that be all? But does something else need to take place? And this is where we find ourselves. Does it make sense? You know, you can kill Hitler. You can win World War II. You can have 75,000 dead. You can have Haman dead and the ten sons. But why is there something that has to be done publicly? Though doubts may linger about the connection between the Book of Esther and the Nazi war, criminals... There is certainly a unique tie together in these two events. Now, if we go back up here to the casting of the Pur, there was occult involvement all through the annihilation of the Jews in World War II when Hitler developed his annihilation plan. And so I looked into this, and they were talking about some of the biggest occultists were partnering with him in his studies of choosing this time. Hitler's dates were occult driven. So just like Haman was an astrologer, it's more than men killing the Jews is what this is saying. It's actually a demonic frenzy, a demonic glee of the dates picked from the war room of the demonic king of choosing the killing. You see that of where the dates of Jesus being cut off is very unusual. But thank goodness we're serving a God who takes what was meant for evil. And there was actually a divine plan being orchestrated. Just as Haman was hanged on a 50 foot high gallows that had been built by him. We have the same thing coming down the line of what's going to happen in history.
So they were hanged after they were dead, completing a victory. The sons were dead, then the sons were hung. Why? Okay, six million Jews were killed by the Germans. And at the end of the war, the surviving Nazi leaders went through a similar trial at Nuremberg for this and other war crimes. The trials began on November the 20th, 1945, for 22 German Nazi leaders. So 22 are on trial on November the 20th. On October the 1st, 1946, 12 of the German defendants were sentenced to death by hanging for their part in the atrocities committed against the Jews. One of those convicted was Martin Bormann, who was sentenced in absentia, who was sentenced just to make a statement. A second was Hermann Goring, who committed suicide in his cells just hours before the executions by taking the cyanide poison pill. The remaining 10 Germans were hanged to death on October the 16th, 1946. And this is where they take the, and tomorrow 10 will be hung as a prophetic word. It's a tomorrow that is now, which happened, and it's a tomorrow which is later, which would happen again. With the Nuremberg trial, since the trial was conducted by a military tribunal, the sentence handed down should have been death by a firing squad. So Nuremberg should have ended with a firing squad. It was a military trial or an electric chair as practiced in the U.S. However, this court specifically prescribed hanging exactly as Esther had chosen. It was exactly Esther's request. Let his sons be hanged. So, was this a prophetic request? Was Esther reaching through history and requesting this? Is she the voice that says, you plan a genocide on my people? The very people that plan it will pay. Six million of the Jews may be killed, but we're still alive to ensure that this happens. We still have influence after you beat us to this point. We still are living because God is with us, because of the fear of the Lord, because you can't wipe out what God has put within the earth. As much as you can try to genocide this people group, the favor of God is still with them. So you see something very odd reaching up through there. So though doubts may linger about the connection between the book of Esther and the Nazi war criminals, the condemned Julius Stryker certainly had none. Through some insight, Stryker appears to have grasped this link to Purim as revealed by his final shout. With the noose about his neck and mere seconds before he was hanged, with burning hatred in his eyes, Stryker looked down at the witnesses and shouted, Purim Fest, 1946. Kaboom. And was hanged. It seemed like the demons themselves knew. These hangings took place on October the 16th, 1946. On the Jewish calendar, October the 16th, 1946, corresponded to 21 Tishri 5707. This date was the last day of the Jewish feast of Sukkot, the day called Hoshana Rabbah. The Jews believe that this day represents the coming time when God's verdicts of judgment will be sealed. 
have we entered into the judgments being sealed. So that's what when we've been asking for distinctions. When Sam got that word that we should pray that the innocents be spared because the cup, the chalice, is, is ready to be poured out. You're seeing even the Germans realize that they spilt their blood, the spilling of the blood against the Jewish people of where Jesus himself will come in and he will intercede on behalf of his people, just like Esther has done. So you see a shocking correspondence that people have made on the hanging of the ten sons only to have exactly ten hung at Nuremberg and uh the guy, as he's uh, hung, and the platform falls out from beneath him, he screams Purim, 1946. So it's flash forward through history. He realized he was a condemned man before he was a condemned man. So Derek Prince's group fasting, another echo of Purim is found in the Soviet Union a few years later. In early 1953, Stalin was planning to deport most of the Jews in the Soviet Union to Siberia. But just before his plans came to fruition, Stalin suffered a stroke and died a few days later. He suffered that stroke on the night of March the 1st, 1953, the night after Purim. Note, Jewish days end at sunset, and you will see March 1st on the calendar as Purim. The plan to deport the Jews was not carried out. Wow. A way of saying publicly, what these men and their father stood for will never be allowed again. So it was enough. It's like that scripture in Zechariah that the Lord said, you know, the punishment that has befallen on his chosen people, that, you know, the unrighteous nations had carried it out, or, or the Gentile nations, let's say, had carried out the punishment on his people. But he said it was worse than he ever had wanted. It went past what he ever dreamed. You know, it's kind of the feeling you have when you have prison guards, you know, those studies where they beat the prisoners unmercifully, that there was something about it that once the Hitler genocide took place, it was cruel beyond what you could even imagine. It was a, a demonic hatred. And, you know, the Jews had set themselves up for, and they opened the door where, you know, this had been loosed on top of them, you know, it had come unleashed. And then here, again, you're seeing that God is just looking at the violence, saying it's, it was too much. So in Esther 9.10, the ten sons of Haman, the son of, you know, and I told you five times it tells you, the son of Hamadatha, the Jews' enemy, that it just kept putting it there. This is the son. This is where it goes through history. But they did not lay hands on the plunder. Esther 9.15, the Jews who were in Susa assembled also on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and killed 300 men in Susa, but they did not lay hands on the plunder. Esther 9.16, now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces assembled to defend their lives and rid themselves of the enemies and kill 75,000 of those who hated them. But they did not lay hands on the plunder. Mm -hmm. To take spoils from their victims shows that the Jews were not out to pillage and enrich themselves, but only to defend their lives, to rid themselves of the witchcraft. Mm. To get the witchcraft off of you. It's an interesting day. That you hand the plunder back on this day. Because I had planned to complete this last week. Timing's been everything. Esther 9, 16-17. To rid themselves. To have it broken off. It's more than winning the war. It's making a statement. As the enemies die... 
literally reads to have rest from their enemies. And that's what happens when the enemy comes in. We have no rest. You know, Haman gave Mordecai no rest in the kingdom, the queen. Hitler gave the Jews no rest in Europe. It created a mess over here, even for us, of no rest. And once again, the spirit of witchcraft poured out on the world is causing no rest. And if you personally get involved with someone in witchcraft, it takes your rest away from you. It takes that soul peace, that soul rest that you have. It's not how God created it. The word rid, nuach, refers to a resting place, a freeing of oneself of something. This noun is also used in Esther 9.17, rested. Esther 9.18, rested. And Esther 9.22, rid. So it goes rested, rested, rid. It creates rest when you rid yourself of something. Perhaps we have to get something to rid ourselves. 75,000 of those who hated them, given 127 provinces. Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> Let's try it again. Stop. Given 127. It's so perfect for what you just got done oh saying. God, it creates rest when you rid yourself of something. <laughs> because it's not restful during the period of getting rid of something. Uh-uh. Stop living by feeling. <laughs> <laughs> it's like perfect. Yeah. <laughs> Everything's symbolic, it seems like, these days. Okay, so given 127 provinces, the number killed averages out to about 600 per province. Remember the Jews were not the aggressors. Those killed attacked the Jews. Esther 9.17, this was done on the 13th day of the month, Adar, and the 14th day, they rested and made it a day of feasting and rejoicing. As the Jews said, well, the story to every Jew is people hate us. Yeah. <laughs> they try to kill us. And now we feast. <laughs> they said that's how everyone, <laughs> so that's what they say when they're celebrating something over there. This is the time now to pass out the Haman cookies. <laughs> <laughs> holiday, literally a good day. It's a day to remember but not for the reason that Haman had thought. He had different plans for that day. On the 13th day of Adar, the 12th month, the king's command and decree to be carried out. On that very day, when the enemies the Jews expected to overpower them, the exact opposite happened. The Jews overpowered those who hated them. That great day, March the 7th, 473 B.C., established a festival that the Jews still celebrate a new annual festival in the 12th month. They celebrate it at the time of the year, every year, right down to the street at the Jewish temple. <laughs> well, at the street at the Jewish synagogue. I don't even know where I got temple. Okay, the Jews set aside two days of celebration for this. And, of course, they have much simcha. Simcha. Remember that? Gladness, joy. So much celebration. That's not M C H A. Mm hmm. Simcha. And it's unusual because Simcha. 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 Simcha.
So Esther's your book of joy. Hmm. And, you know, that was the word that I'd gotten was to do these things with joy. So you got Esther 8, 16, 17, Esther 9, 17, 18, and 19. So, and also this verse here. So listen to Esther 9, 23 to 28. So the Jews accepted the custom, the tradition, which they had begun as Mordecai had written to them because Haman the Agite, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to annihilate them and, and had cast pur, that is, the lot to consume them and destroy them. So they called these days Purim after the name Pur. pur. Therefore the Jews established and imposed it upon themselves and their descendants and all who would join them, that without fail they should celebrate these two days every year according to the written instructions, according to the prescribed time that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, every family, every province, every city, that these days of Purim should not fail to be observed among the Jews and that the memory of them should not perish among their descendants. And that is this day a two-day holiday of feasting, rejoicing, food sharing, gift giving to the poor and each other memorable memorial feasting as the Jews celebrate the fact that they were delivered from being exterminated. This whole experience of Esther is put into feast form. So memory is a noun, zekar, Z-E-K-E-R, which means remembrance. So this is in their culture, and that's why it moves around the dates, because the two days fall on the calendar. So verse 30, Mordecai sent official documents granting peace and security to all the Jews in the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Xerxes. Long after Haman was hanged, Mordecai and Esther continued to flourish in the royal house of King Ahasuerus. The king exalted Mordecai to second in command and continued to love his queen. Wait for the Lord and keep his way and he will exalt you to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, you will see it. I have seen a violent, wicked man spreading himself like a luxuriant tree in its native soil. Then he passed away, and lo, he was no more. I sought for him, but he could not be found. Written by David, Psalm 37, 34 through 36. I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. Esther 8, 1. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, to Queen Esther. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had disclosed what he was to her. So the house of Haman was now being given as a gift to Queen Esther. Haman had, had himself talked about the glory of his riches in uh, Esther 5.11. One might say that he, Haman, had climbed the ladder of success, but it was leaning against the wrong building. What is the author explaining? Mordecai came before the king. Esther explained who he was to her. Esther, Mordecai, and the Jews had been spared. And not only spared, but elevated, elevated, elevated. The loyal Mordecai then becomes prime minister in Haman's place. In Esther 10, verse 3, For Mordecai the Jew was second to King Ahasuerus, and great among the Jews, and in favor with his many kinsmen, one who sought the good of his people, and one who spoke for the welfare of his whole nation. I think he wore MAGA hats. He actually yeah. appreciated his people and had a love for them. Mm -hmm. 
It's a reversal. Haman takes Mordecai's place and Mordecai takes Haman's place. So with God, it's a reversal that takes place. So you see that what the enemy is meaning for this, that God will switch it out. That there is something that takes place that switches things that are evil that are coming against you. And what was meant to be a destruction actually becomes a feast. And what was actually meant to be a time of great mourning and loss and tragedy you know, with the Lord, and it's not just with the Lord because people expect it to be God is in control and he just does it. Either he does it or he doesn't. That's how they look at it. But actually, Esther and Mordecai developed a strategy. They carried it out. Esther's plan of strategy was very unique, how she did it. They didn't just let things go down wrong in history. They called all the people together for corporate prayer and fasting. She threw herself at his feet. People did what they should, and they got the results that they wanted. So it takes some steps of us to bring about a reversal when things are going the wrong direction. That it is God doing it, because only he can work behind the scenes and cause this to come about. But you can see where there was secret plans that you don't even know are happening, being formed against you, and something planning your destruction and it's like the thief. You don't even know he's come. You didn't get a picture of him. You don't know what he looks like and everything's missing. The same thing was happening to them. But Mordecai got aware of it. That he first got aware that there were some people plotting the death of the king and protected him. If the king had been killed at that point and assassinated, then they for sure would have been killed. Yeah. But he kept a king in place that wasn't for God, but he wasn't against him. He was in that group. He was in that group of, you know, not being against. And so as you see this, there's a lot of factors that have to take place, but only the Gentiles come to the point of thinking that it's it's all on God. It is all on God, but you've, you've got to partner with him on those. So the reversal is very unique. Uh, the book is actually uh, two people switching places. And that's the Haman and the Mordecai switching. Esther has been put in place and she uses her authority well. But Mordecai and Haman actually uh, switch out. That is how on Purim that they defeated the plan of witchcraft. And they were able to redeem it, redeem the time and get the curse off of them.